Christ like thinking, a podcast dedicated to discussing how Christians can live out Romans 12:2, which tells us, "Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God." On today's episode, I'm talking with Dr. Stephen Ortiz, Associate Professor of Archaeology and Biblical Backgrounds, as well as the director of the Tandy Institute for Archaeology at the Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. And for full disclosure, I had the pleasure of being one of Dr. Ortiz's students nine years ago when he and I were both at the New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. Dr. Ortiz, thanks for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me, Bruce. So first, I wanted to ask, what is biblical archaeology? Well, uh, it's an evolving discipline. Before, biblical archaeology was seen as a subset of biblical studies. The background, it provided the historical context. But now it's seen as the convergence of two disciplines, one, biblical studies, and two, archaeology. As you know, archaeology has developed its own research goals, its own procedures, uh, its own emphasis. It's considered a, a social science or belonging in social science, whereas biblical studies belongs in the humanities. And so, at least, as you know, here at Southwest, we started a new biblical archaeology program, but we don't call it biblical archaeology. We call it an MA in archaeology and biblical studies, Uh, emphasizing this new trend that a student has to be able to control both disciplines, the social science, the science of archaeology, and second, studying the Bible. I think, if I understand correctly, all of archaeology is kind of in the middle between social sciences and humanities, um, sort of an art and a science. Yes. And so you find archaeologists in humanities departments and in science departments. I took intro to archaeology as an undergraduate at a state school. And if I remember correctly from all those years ago, when biblical archaeology started as a sort of sub-discipline within archaeology, it was, it was sort of laughed at, you know, the idea that you could combine anything biblical, which, you know, was myth or fable with real studies of archaeology. Is that true? Yes. In those secular schools, it, how I say, labeled with archaeologies of crystals and archaeologies looking for extraterrestrials. So it's kind of like this, <laughs> um, you know, place in that um, auxiliary type of field where, you know, you have a, a wacko studying this type of stuff. Right. And do you think that's changed over the last century and a half? Yes. No, I wouldn't say century and a half. I would say in the past decades because archaeology in Bible lands, let's say Israel, Jordan, Egypt, Mesopotamia, these all have the solid disciplines that have contributed to the larger field of of archaeology. So when I got my degree, it wasn't called Biblical Archaeology. It's a PhD in Near Eastern Archaeology. Right. Basically the archaeology of this area of the Near East, of the ancient Near East, Syro-Palestine. And so those working within these fields build archaeologists, even a subset within that that field. There are a lot of um, secular archaeologists that are studying the same data that I'm studying. They're just not interested in questions that address the Bible. I, I might be studying the archaeology of David and Solomon. They will be studying the archaeology of state formation in the 10th century. Right. But we're looking at the same thing. Right. Now, 
if I understand correctly also, there are still scholars who, when you talk about state formation, 10th century BC, would still sort of think that is, is myth and fable and largely ignore archaeological contributions. Is that true? Biblical scholars do. That's one of the ironies of history. So critical biblical scholars will deny the state in the 10th century, but secular scholars will acknowledge you know, the archaeological evidence. So there's two different questions that you're asking, you know, in terms of secular archaeologists looking at biblical archaeology. And within the field of biblical archaeology, you have two groups, those that are the popular term is minimalist and maximalist. And it's usually those who are critical biblical scholars or secular biblical scholars that believe the Bible is a myth, so therefore there's no such thing as state in the 10th century. Right. So the, the biblical scholars, again, approaching from the humanities side, would be more likely, it, secular biblical scholars would be more likely to ignore the archaeological contributions. Yes. And do you think that is changing at all? No, I, I found that when people, people are going to hold to their preconceived ideas, what is changing is they're not denying the archaeological record, they're just reinterpreting the archaeological record. Okay. And that's where the debate is. So secular biblical scholars will, that site will come up and they'll reevaluate it or redate it. And that's the big thing now where, okay, you're right. We have evidence for a state, but the, you've just misstated it to the 10th century. It belongs to the 9th century BC. Okay, and so that's how they're approaching the problem okay. or the issue of the Bible. Okay. Now, you went to the University of Arizona, which is a highly respected school for archaeology. As a evangelical studying in that institution, how were you received among the academics? Well, as long as he did solid work or research, I never had a professor want to kick me out of class because I'm an evangelical. Okay. No, I, I, didn't, I, I didn't hide my faith, but I didn't, you know, if the lecture in class that day was 10th century pottery, I studied 10th century pottery. Right. Um, I, I wouldn't stand up and say, this proves David existed, uh, because it doesn't. It just proves that there was pottery during the 10th century. <laughs> that's, right. a, that's another level of yeah. of engagement. And, uh, if you're a good scholar, if you're an evangelical, they acknowledge your work and say, this is good, solid work. I might not agree with where they're taking the conclusion, but I'm not going to argue the solid work. So the, the science stands apart on its own, and that's, as academics, they're judging right. you by your science. Or how you handle the data. And that's what I'm trying to teach even our students at the seminary. It's like you're, you're going to have a chip on your shoulder because you're from Southwestern, but once you demonstrate that you can handle the data, they'll respect you for your academic ability. Those who are true scholars will respect you for your scholarship and see beyond that. If they have a you know, a problem with faith, they're going to have a problem no matter what, even if you're doing good scholarship. Mm -hmm. You can't do anything with those people. Okay. Now, obviously, archaeologists are humans and encompass a lot more than their archaeology profession, but would you say that archaeology has a distinct worldview? I don't think there's a particular worldview, like a club where archaeologists get together and this is how we think. I think Archaeology is a product of the academy, and so because it belongs, you find archaeologists within academic institutions, they're more influenced by liberal scholarship or 
liberal thinking, evolutionary thinking, that worldview. And so they come out of that worldview. But I don't think it's necessarily what we're finding in the ground or the dirt that takes them to that worldview. I mean, I think they're part of the academy. I was thinking, I was wondering if they had sort of a scientific worldview, or it sounds like you're saying they have sort of an academic worldview. Yes, from wherever they study or the influence there. Now, in the larger academy, biblical archaeology or archaeology that covers the biblical lands, they tend to respect history more because they're dealing with historical texts. And so there's a, a little bit of, of, of difference there because they're, you know, we have cuneiform, we have Egyptian hieroglyphics, you know, there's a larger dimension to what they're doing versus maybe archaeology from the New World or Old World prehistory where they don't have the text. So it does, it's a little bit different where you have archaeologists at the Society of American Anthropology that are more theoretically oriented. And if you go to the Archaeological Institute of America, where they're more classically trained, you know, they're more open to language and history. In Near Eastern biblical archaeology, where, as you said, it's it's historical, there it's a, a literate time where we have historical records, does having the physical artifacts and the recorded history complicate the issue of interpretation or aid in interpretation? Both. It's more data to help you reconstruct ancient society, but it's also more data to argue over. So it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a double-edged sword. You mentioned your MA and PhD program at Southwestern Seminary. Uh, of course, seminaries traditionally have been geared toward preparing ministers for churches. So how do you see your program as contributing to the seminary's overall mission? Oh, that's a good question. It's twofold. Our field, because it's new and fresh, we're helping with uh, putting the biblical text within its historical and cultural context. And so that's the first level where we're training scholars of the biblical text to interpret it properly. And then once you have that proper interpretation for that next level of applying it to ministry or the church, then we're aiding in handling God's word more accurately. And so that's a more difficult process to take it from, and that's anything within even biblical studies, but, you know, the Hebrew language. It's like, great, I know Hebrew. Now how does this help me with the person in the pew? And, and the thing that unites that is, is God's word. It makes you better at interpreting and handling God's word. And since God's word is central for what goes on in ministry, it, it aids in that. Can you give me an example of some passage of scripture where biblical archaeology has made a contribution that really makes a difference? It would be something that without biblical archaeology, we would not have known. I'll give, I'll give one Old Testament example, one New Testament example. In the patriarchal period, let's say in the books of Moses, the Pentateuch, first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you have a, a lot of law codes. And this is very difficult for a, a Western Christian because it's like, okay, how, what does this have to do with me? And, and you know, we take out tidbits, we take out the Ten Commandments. We have Abraham doing various things. 
nomadic lifestyle, engaging in Near Eastern cultural things. And archaeology, the study of cuneiform texts, has opened up that world so we actually can put Abraham in his cultural context. So a lot of things that are foreign to us, genealogy, lineage, tribalism, archaeology brings out that world so that the pastor, when he's going through those texts, he's able to make a better connection in terms of, okay, this is an issue that Abraham is dealing with, and it might be in the economic realm or in what he's doing with his family, with Sarah. And now it's just like we don't do those customs anymore, but the principle is still the same. And for the patriarchal period, that's how archaeology helps put those texts in its cultural context so the pastor can make a better application. Now, there's one um, misnomer that people listening to this conversation will miss out. Because when they think of biblical archaeology, they think of Indiana Jones and a treasure hunter. And what thing have you found that helps make a text sound better or, you know, documents that text? And it's not one thing. It's not, you know, okay, we found this one particular thing that explains everything. That helps in terms of some of the historicity where critical scholars will say the Bible's not true because we don't know this or this, you know, we haven't found this. And so archaeologists have found it. But it's more the accumulation of archaeological data, like I, I use with the patriarchal example. The accumulation of the world of Abraham helps us understand these mm -hmm. biblical texts. Right. I just heard um, my colleague, Dr. Davis, uh, gave a scholarly presentation on Paul on Cyprus. And he noted Cyprus, you had, it, it was a divided country. It's a small island, but part of the cities belonged to where modern day Turkey is, over Eastern, and part of the island was Western, or the, the Greco Roman world. And now he's showing that when Paul was going to various cities, he was transferring or working between an Eastern context and a Western context. And only archaeology has shown that, you know, where that line is. An example is um, we both live in Texas. You're in South. I'm up here in the North. But we know there's two there's could be two cultures here. And we, we can tell because, you know, we have languages. We have Spanish. We have English. We, we can recognize the border, so to speak, the right. cultural border. Well, in New Testament scholars, they're not seeing these cultural borders. And um, it was just phenomenal because he, he's worked on Cyprus, and he can say, look, in the New Testament, here's where the border was between east and west. And Paul was doing something as he was going to various cities, in his missionary journeys, there's some statements there where he's saying, okay, I'm now going from Dallas to Fort Worth, which are two totally different cultural cities. And and we don't catch that as 21st century readers of the biblical text, but archaeology is, is, is bringing that out. And this is something new and fresh. It hasn't been published. Well, it has recently been published in a book, but... New Testament scholars don't even address that. And so we're quite excited because we're adding this new component and Dr. Davis's research to show, okay, we've got to rethink even the New Testament 
because to us we see Cyprus as one single island, but it's actually two different cultures on it. And, and Paul knows this, but we don't know it. And it, it'll have an influence on some of the way we interpret the biblical text. And then even um, bringing it to the Gospels. Well, I'll, I'll give one last example. or I mean, I can give you more, but here's one more archaeological point. Uh, we have Jesus being born in the manger and being born in an inn. And we have all of our Christmas stories, our Christmas plays have, there's no room in the inn, Jesus being born in a manger. Well, archaeology has shown that, one, it, it probably wasn't an inn. It was, you know, uh, the extended household. And it wasn't that Jesus was born outside in the barn, but people actually brought their animals into the center part of the house. This is a good Middle Eastern household, kind of like the old Spanish hacienda where you had a courtyard and then you had the rooms around the courtyard. And we have this misperception of Jesus being born outside, away from the family in the barn. And it's like, no, it means there was no room in one of the living rooms that he had to be born right there where they kept the animals inside the, the family context. So this revolutionizes the way we even tell the story because, you know, God revealed him within uh, this household structure. And so just the way we even tell the Christmas story, which is a story, which is part of the gospel, we tell the Christian story, you know, uh, our Lord being born in a manger. And that changes the perspective. Right. Well, you mentioned the historicity of the Bible, and I was also thinking about that and, and apologetics. How has the Near Eastern archaeology or biblical archaeology, how has it transferred into apologetics? Just as you said, in terms of the historicity of, of the biblical text, there, there's an assumption that the Bible was written a lot later than the events that you know happened. As Christians, we know that Moses wasn't walking around with a notebook keeping a diary, that he had an event and he would record it after. So there's some natural editing process. But critical scholars take it further that it's so far from the truth that a lot of these had to have been made up. What archaeology does is it's like, well, no, if it says he went from city A to city B to city C, archaeologists go and we find city A, city B, city C, that these are the stories and the events, the, the skeleton of them is accurate. And archaeology shows that we have the basic skeleton. And then the stories are the flesh and blood of uh, of the events that were important to the Israelites or the people of the Bible. And in turn, this is important to us for canon because it's these accounts that God so ordained as him working in the lives of the Israelites, the disciples, and these got recorded. And archaeology sh shows that these stories reflect real authentic time, culture, and uh, geographical events. I like to read um, Lifeway's periodical Biblical Illustrator and, and see how a lot of the uh, history and archaeology ties into interpretation of the Bible and even things like you said, when we're talking about the patriarchal period and seeing how the the idea of covenants was a common idea then that it would have meant something to the audience. 
Yeah, that's a good example. Yes, of how. Yeah. And I I taught through a study on Ezekiel, and I remember reading about the Cyrus cylinder and how the Cyrus cylinder verified some of the historical aspects of the the return of the exiles. Yes, that fits uh, historical and political context. When you talk about the idea that many of these texts were written so much longer after the time period, you know, can't really be trusted. How has uh, the discovery of over the last decades so many fragments for the New Testament or even the Dead Sea Scrolls changed that? Well, I like to use the example of that parlor game uh, telephone or secret where one person whispers in somebody's ear and then they whisper that to somebody else's ear and then by the time you go around the circle, the secret has changed. Right. Scholars assume that with the biblical text that, well, it's been copied so many centuries that it just keeps getting watered down and watered down and watered down. And the earliest biblical text we had was like, let's say, 1000 AD. And so it was just assumed that, well, the church has changed this so many times. And every time you have a new doctrine or debate, the winners change how scripture is written. And this is, you know, the Da Vinci Code has really, you know, ran with this theory where the church has changed so much. Well, in 1947-48, with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, all of a sudden we had biblical texts that were written from 250 B.C. to 100 A.D. And now, we, for the first time, we had, okay, here's a biblical text that were written a thousand years before the earliest biblical text we had preserved, you know, the textual record. The Old Testament. I'm talking about the Masoretic text. Right. We had we had other Greek manuscripts that were earlier you know, for the New Testament. And what we're able to do is take your family Bible that you read, or go to the Christian bookstore and hear the various translations, and compare it to what was coming out, you know, from the archaeological discoveries. And we saw that the canon was actually preserved pretty accurately. And I mean, pretty accurately. One text might say Moses went up to the mountain. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, they might say up to the mountain Moses went. Right. But you know, but that's within you know the syntax. You're like, okay, wait, it's the same. There's no change. It's not like the Dead Sea Scrolls come up and said, well, it wasn't Moses, it was Bob. You know. <laughs> but but you know, up to that point, that you know, the scholarly models were like that. That okay, they changed so much, and you can have so many changes. Like okay, Jesus was actually married to Mary. Jesus had kids. Jesus, you know, and they just made everything up. Right. And, you know, they had that same assumption with the Old Testament and the Dead Sea Scrolls just put that theory to rest, demonstrating that there was a cultural element among the Israelites and Jews that preserved the text and that the model that believing Jews and Christians were postulating that, no, this was sacred, that they, you know, weren't going to change it. And it's funny, in some, you know, as you know, Southwestern has some Dead Sea Scrolls. Right. In um, some of our fragments we have like an error, like, you know, they copied a line. And because the text was so sacred, they couldn't erase it. Let's say it was my example, and Moses went up to the mountain. And let's say they put the mountain twice, like they went to go copy mountain, and they spelled mountain. And Moses went up to the mountain, mountain. Oops, I wrote that twice. They couldn't erase it because copying mountain again was also holy because that was God's word. Right. And 
so they had to put a notation, okay, only mount in once, like only read it once. You know, the second one is a copying error. But since I copied God's holy word, I'm not going to erase it. And so we have a lot of these scribal notations that even note, you know, we can read and say, oh, they, they mentioned that they copied the wrong word, but they weren't going to change it because it was holy. And so it's just phenomenal to see even the hand of the scribe copying God's word and all of a sudden realizing, oops, I, I, I copied it wrong, but I want to tell the person that it's wrong. So here's my note because I'm not going to erase it. And so we see these little evidences of scribes having considering it holy. Okay, uh, you mentioned the, the small differences. Moses went up to the mountain, or he went up to the mountain, Moses went. I know like some scholars like Bart Ehrman make a big deal out of those sorts of textual differences. Do you see any of that as important? What's your take on that sort of criticism? No, but... The irony is we, we created that as believers. I think we, we come to God's word with this assumption of not one word has changed, and we create a perception of inerrancy that not one, you, you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's so exact. Right. And then people come up in the church, and they, they have this concept, and then when they go to the university, like Bart, Bart Ehrman did, and he sees, hey, there are variations, then all of a sudden his concept of God's word crumbles. And it's like, okay, well, God never said that in his word. And, and I'm, I'm going to get myself in trouble here because it does say not one dot or tittle, you know. But somehow, which is funny because I'll tell these people, look, we'll be in Sunday school class, and we'll be studying texts of the Bible, and somebody will read from their translation, and it'll be the New King James Version. Somebody will read and it'll be the New American Standard Version. Somebody else will have the New International Version. And they're all a little bit different. But we never feel like, wait, you're not reading God's Word because you're not reading the King James. And we have, you know, each translation has a different emphasis on how the, you know, the syntax or uh, we're making it more contemporary. Or, but we still believe it is God's Word that's being read and that it's holy. And we never question it. If I go to a different church and on the overhead, they're using the New King James, and my church uses Brahman Holman translation, I don't think this church is not you know, reading God's Word. We're quite comfortable with that translation. Or somebody sitting in church and they have a Spanish Bible. Look, that dot and tittle is different. It's a different word. It's a Spanish word, and I'm reading English. And we can go Korean, we can go, you know, it's here at the seminary, we have so many languages in chapel, but we all know it's God's word. Mm-hmm. And in the ancient times, there is a, how would I say, they, they had Bible translations. We can see them in the Dead Sea Scrolls. They had variations, and they were comfortable with that, knowing that it's still God's word. Just like I can be sitting next to a Korean student, and the dot and tittle are different, mm-hmm. but it, that is still God's word, and it has a power to transform his life. In, in ancient texts, can you actually see them updating language as language changed over the centuries? In, in the biblical text itself, we, we have that. We'll have, until this day, they still do this. This is called lie-ish. Today, it's called dam. Uh, we have Abraham coming from Ur of the Chaldees. 
Well, Chaldees is a a first millennium term, first millennium BC. But Abraham dates to the second millennium. Mm-hmm. And this is probably Ur of Sumer. And so we already have it that look that this term was lost. They never they didn't know the name anymore. But they updated it and they're calling it from the Chaldeans. And so, you know, I'm not dating the whole text of the Chaldeans. It's like we already see uh, within the biblical text itself, the biblical authors were telling their audience, you know, that there's some updating there. And there's so many times, um, even in the narrative text in the book of Joshua, even to this day or until this day. So it's telling the, the biblical reader that, okay, I have this time period that I'm telling you the story, but this story dates earlier, and I have to explain things. On uh, the New Testament, we, we have that type of editing. Uh, this is a Jewish custom, or the Jews do this. We already have the Septuagint. So already in 200 B.C., we have a Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so we knew that it had to have been going on. We have Aramaic terms, and we can look uh, the Hebrew of Ezra and Nehemiah and say, look, there's more Aramaic in here than Hebrew. And so there's an update for the for the language. So, so yeah, we have a lot of evidence for that. You mentioned this idea that developed that, you know, it's the infallible word of God, therefore every dot has to be exactly as it was originally, but clearly that isn't the case, but yet we still believe this is the word of God. So so what does it mean to you to say it's this is the word of God? It means that it's the infallible, inerrant word of God, the canon that we have. Mm-hmm. But when I look at the canon, I see the process of God's revelation. You know, as a scholar, I can look at that process. Mm-hmm. And the example I gave with Bart Earlman, you know, he had the theological concept. He grew up with that, that God's word is inerrant. But somewhere he took out the process. Mm-hmm. That there was, you know, editing translation going on. God was using men to write his text. And that process, we removed it. And even, as I said, evangelicals, the conservative evangelicals, we focus on the theological concept of inerrancy. But we never talk about how God actually did it, you know, using men to write his word. So when we see that historical aspect, that's where uh, believers have a hard time. Uh, Not a hard time. We we just don't think about it. Theologians don't think about it. When you take a class on systematic theology, they teach you about God's inerrant word. And they kind of know, like, well, yeah, Moses was an editor. Moses wasn't around the time of Abraham. This was oral history. He learned it from his parents. You know, he, he got the oral history of the accounts now. That's a process of how God's word was written down. I can look at historical texts and I can say, okay, they even the Bible says more of this is written in such and such an account or in this historical source. We have at the end of the Gospels, John says that. He goes, I couldn't record all the miracles of our Lord. There aren't enough books to contain. And so already then we can say, you know what? The Gospel writers chose some things and then record everything. So that means Jesus performed more miracles that are recorded in the gospel accounts. And they just chose some to illustrate it. Now that's a process. That's the editing process. And we can see each 
individual gospel gospel author collating Jesus' sermons, changing the uh, not the historicity but how they're recording the accounts. Right. But we're comfortable with that because that's God's work. God used these four gospel writers to tell the good news. And the same thing is going on in the Old Testament. And and that's for, I don't want to say more sophisticated, but Christians have to account not just for the the theology of biblical inerrancy, uh, but also account for how God used men to do it. And so, and, and and that's a problem even with the academic study of God's word, where some men can focus on the the historical events, but they don't step back and see the God's hand in history. Okay, well, well, David went and conquered, or David went and did this, and it's just like, yeah, that's a true event. David did that, but they can step back and say, God was fulfilling His salvation history through David. And it's the same problems we have as believers today, where we can get focused on ourselves and saying, okay, this is what I'm doing for God's kingdom, instead of stepping back and saying, okay, wait, this is what God is doing through me. And in spite of our mistakes or errors, we can still say God is working. And, and that's just one of the, the mysteries of God working in our lives, that in spite of our sinfulness, something holy is still being accomplished. And that's that's very different than say a Muslim worldview, where Muslims believe that the the Quran came word for word from God, and God would never work through a human being in such a way to contextualize His word, uh, as you mentioned the gospel writers did. Right, and so we can have godly men who would study the Hebrew and offer a new translation, the Brahman and Holman translation, and we still say they are doing something. This is sacred text, but yet we know that you know. Okay, they met in Nashville, or you know, whatever process took place. Right. If a pastor in a church comes across some aspect of you know the historicity or biblical archaeology that sheds light on a text, would you have any recommendations for how that pastor might go about introducing this idea? to a congregation, how to how to bring in biblical backgrounds to a sermon. He should already be doing that within the context, whatever text he's using. The, the text didn't happen in a in a vacuum. So using Joshua, he should be first presenting the world of Joshua, which is why I'm a, a big proponent of expository sermons that you you know, uh, right? You, you go through the text. Um, and most pastors that have been in seminary are trained in that, that they do the background. But even um, uh, the emphasis is also the message of the text. And so when I preach, I don't always preach archaeology. If the archaeology helps br- bridge the context of Scripture, uh, then I bring it in. But I don't, you know, if it says this event happened at Jerusalem. Well, if it's important, if Jerusalem is important in that context, then I'll explain why it's important, or this is where the temple was located. So, the, you know, this is what you know the the early the early audience would be realizing. But not the backgrounds doesn't always get to the message. Right. Okay. Well, earlier you mentioned uh, Da Vinci Code. 
how would you respond to the ideas that have become popular based on the Da Vinci Code, this idea of a massive conspiracy over centuries to obscure the actual Bible? Oh, I, I, that is hard for me as a scholar. That's like that's like asking me, did bunnies, you know, attack the world 10 years ago? <laughs> it's, it's so ridiculous that you go like, okay, well, I'm going to actually talk about bunnies. Um, that is somewhat how I respond. It's just, look, this is so ridiculous. There's no historical evidence for this. It, it is, you know, uh, conspiracy theories made up. I, I can't, you know. So why do you think that the Da Vinci Code and similar ideas have become so popular? The church isn't doing its job in educating its people. <laughs> it's amazing how many believers, believe, you know, buy into that. Right. Uh, it comes back to uh, biblical literacy. And, and, and this is uh, coming back to your question of how pastors would do it. I, I, I think what we lack, there's one thing for the sermon, but there's also the, um, uh, a pastor is also supposed to be teaching his congregation, whether it's in Sunday school, uh, Sunday night programs, but we, we don't teach biblical literacy. And that's where I would teach backgrounds courses. Mm -hmm. Like at my church, I might teach the background to the life and times of Jesus. It won't be a sermon, but it'll be a church training course right. on introducing this and preparing them. And that's where a lot of pastors, I think, you know, they, it's like, okay, Sunday, this is what I do. Sunday night, I preach. And it's like, that's great. That's what God has called us to do, to preach the gospel. But he's also taught, taught us to disciple the church. And a lot of churches have given up on that discipleship, just that training where, okay, you need an hour to teach this concept. Mm -hmm. um, and you, you need church training classes. Um, you, you need, you know, um, that level of engagement. And, and the church has, you know, a left discipleship. You, you can't teach spiritual gifts in one sermon. There are many texts there. That's, uh, you know, a six-week class on discerning your spiritual gift. And, you know, unfortunately, the Western church, we like, you know, we're used to half-hour sitcoms on TV. Right. And, you know, that's our level of thinking, and the church has, you know, uh, left that. Uh, you've taken my classes before. Right. And students go like, can you come to my church and teach this? And I'll tell them, I go, I had to read... 50 pages of articles, I gave you an hour lecture, and then the next lecture, I, I, I gave you the biblical insight. And the students liked that biblical insight, but I said, but, you know, you had a lot of preparation to get to that insight or that point. And I go, I can't do that in a sermon. I can't assign readings, you know. Right. <laughs> but your next, next, I'm going to preach on this, but you need to read this, you know, background and come prepared. But I can do that in a church training class. And, and, and that's, you know, coming back to your question, how should pastors do it? It's like it might not be done in a sermon, but it should be done in the life of the church uh, where you're teaching them. And then same thing coming back to the Da Vinci Code, it's just like this biblical literacy is, you know, um, nobody knows what the Bible says anymore. And so when somebody comes out and says this, well, I'll give an example within archaeology. You have somebody talking about the tomb of Jesus the Taupio tomb. And, you know, it's coming out, 
Well, the first people that said that was bunk were secular Jewish Israeli archaeologists who knew more about the location of Jesus' tomb, who knew about uh, his lineage. Well, if his family was from Galilee, if he had a family burial site, it would be up in Galilee, not in Jerusalem. Um, he, the family of Jesus wasn't. In, if anybody finds a tomb in Jerusalem, it's a, this is the family tomb. <laughs> you know, and so it's funny that secular Jewish archaeologists were the ones who refuted this because they knew the data. Right. It was like it was common to them. It's just like, no, we know where Jesus' tomb was. We know where tombs were located during the Second Temple period, and you know, um, uh, this is a later tomb. They knew the dating of the tomb, uh, and and um, one we didn't have enough evangelical archaeologists who can quickly respond. Um, uh, thank God we didn't need to because the secular Jewish, you know, put put it to rest. Um, but we don't have enough pastors who, when the Da Vinci Code can come out, can say, wait, hold it, here's, you know, what we know about church history, what we know about the archaeology. Um, Since you can't visit all these churches and do this training, is there a curriculum that you would recommend if, church, if some pastor or church out there says, we want to have a discipleship program and talk about biblical backgrounds, what could they do? They can listen to your podcast, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, that'll be one hour. <laughs> yeah, yes. Um, not off the top of my head, no. I, I can't. Um, uh, I, I know the Southern Baptist, uh, Robin Holman, we put out some good stuff. Um, not, not as intense as I would like in terms of the archaeology and biblical backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the problems is we don't have enough uh, men and women who can handle this. And, and that's, you know, fortunately, Dr. Patterson here at Southwestern has seen that vision and, you know, wanted to, look, we have to train the next generation. And that's what I'm hoping to do, that, okay, I'm training this new group of students we have from 15 to 20. And hopefully they will go out and go to our other seminaries and Bible colleges and uh be able to address the archaeology and, and backgrounds. Um, okay. Besides one course, I haven't. I've been asked to develop a course, but I'm busy teaching students. <laughs> right. I'm, I'm hoping a student will, and um, I'm excited to see Bruce that you're doing this and you're trying to get get it out to the lay. And so I'm I'm excited that you realize the importance of the backgrounds and um, for biblical interpretation but also apologetics and yeah i just i know how much over time just studying the bible myself i i've gained from looking at some of the biblical backgrounds seeing things like the the covenantal structure and the patriarchs or seeing the historicity of the the old testament historical books and you know seeing god working through history through things like the exile and and the the return of the exiles and the the rebuilding of the temple and then seeing as you said with the gospels you know Jesus ministry was in a real world you know working with real people and you know that's just been amazing to me to to see that aspect of the bible i could tell this isn't a a background but a recently published book that came out just within the past month 
Uh, it's edited by Hoffmeyer and uh, uh, Megary. It's Do Historical Matters Matter to Faith? A Critical Appraisal of Modern and Postmodern Approaches to Scripture. And it's more somewhat of a, a theological book, but there's also archaeology because I contributed an article, and there's like five articles in there, chapters on archaeology. Um, but it's evangelical scholars got together and said, okay, the church has lost its underpinning of the Bible being historical. And they're focusing on just theological truths, but they're not realizing that, they, that theological truths are grounded in historical truths. And so they realized the need. They got theologians, biblical scholars, and archaeologists together to you know, write a comprehensive book on where the church is failing or where Christian scholarship is failing. And I'd recommend that to, um, well, to see the urgency of what you stated of, you know, the, the historical backgrounds to to the Bible. That ties into just the, the idea of, you know, biblical theology in terms of seeing the big picture and how it all unfolds in, in God's working through history. Yeah. And then, of course, as you said, with expository preaching, if you're really going to expose the the text, then you need to know what was going on. I guess the the first step in interpretation is to find out what it meant to the original people. So you need to know where they were and what they were doing and what all this means to them. Amen. Thank you very much for your time. And thank you, Bruce. Dr. Stephen Ortiz is sort of a rarity among evangelicals. He's an accomplished archaeologist, having received his Ph.D. from one of the top schools in the country and having contributed to the profession through years of research in the Near East. And at the same time, he's a seminary professor who serves the church by teaching pastors how to understand the historical and cultural background of the Bible and by teaching future archaeologists to continue researching and teaching. Part of Christ-like thinking is taking the Bible seriously, and that means taking the time to thoughtfully understand the Bible and apply it to our lives today. I'm thankful that Dr. Ortiz does that, and I'm thankful he took the time to talk with me. Thank you for listening to Christ-like thinking. We always welcome listener feedback, so feel free to send an email to christlikethinking at gmail.com, and join us next time. Sir.